I haven't I haven't been on my game because I I used to know. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Never Stay Dead. This is Damien, and I am joined by my good buddy, Matt. Want to say your catchphrase, Matt? Zip, zap, zoopity, zoop. Oh, that's nice. It's time to talk some comics, stupidy doop. In the soup. There you go. It's it's my famous catchphrase <laughs> that I say every very time. Very famous catchphrase. And um, <clears throat> I'm very jealous I have no catchphrase, except coughing into the microphone. Okay, so today we are here to talk about Daredevil and very specifically the first six issues of Daredevil that Frank Miller wrote. Possibly we'll talk about Frank Miller's run on Daredevil in general, or maybe we'll do another podcast where we look at later in his run. Oh, we're talking about the general stuff, baby. There's no way around it. So, and to me, the Frank Miller taking over writing... In hindsight, Frank Miller taking over writing Daredevil is kind of a watershed moment. The beginning of the end of the Bronze Age, you might say. People didn't know the Bronze Age was ending then. But for me, he was setting up the future. the start of the Bronze? The Bronze Age starts either in 1970 or... I think it starts in 1970. And most people list it ending as 1986. Okay, and then what's the 86 to what 2000 mark called you know people talk about the copper age and i'm not sure what that is other people say the dark age which started with uh the dark knight returns and watchmen and okay, ended if it's the bronze the dark age. age but if it's the dark age it goes from 86 to like 92 and then it's the hollow foil <laughs> age yeah they no one has a term beyond the dark age they just say modern age no one's come up with a good term post dark but i'd almost say the current age you could call the writer's age of comics coming out of the fiasco of the artist's age of comics in the 90s we got basically ever since the writer's name comes first and people talk about you know they talk about so and so you know dan slot spider-man they don't talk about the way they used to talk about John Romita's Spider-Man or, or that kind of thing. Well, that's because John Romita's jumping around between titles, not sticking with one title, and then jumping over to do Archie versus the Punisher or something. You know, what? what? Just you totally lost me there. Um, JRJR or I was talking about Spider-Man John Romita Senior, but <laughs> well, he's dead. Did he die? He was alive In last night. My <laughs> heart, he's dead. He's um, long since retired, but. I don't think I've heard about him dying. Well, never stay dead, I guess. Um, <laughs> Good for but you, John. So... <laughs> um, no, so what I'm saying is, I mean, maybe you're not as aware of it as I thought you are, but whenever people talk about the Silver Age and the Bronze Age, they almost always talk about the artists. And it... Well... Except for Stan Lee or something. Well, I thought the the Silver Age was kind of marked by a certain shift in how the comics were. So, like, it was the idea of the Flash Crisis meeting uh, kind of bringing us into the Silver Age and kind of this... Flash Crisis um, meeting? 
when the two flashes met and you had earth one and oh. earth two that was my understanding of the beginning of the silver age from the gold age and this idea of continuity and story kind of no. taking the, a different... most people mark the beginning of the silver age as being i'm sorry to say no that way but my understanding is most people this i think you're confusing silver and bronze perhaps when the two flashes met that was the beginning of the bronze age according to some people well, but the two flashes met in what seventies or something? Eighty six was Watchmen, Mouse, Dark right. Knight. Bronze Age that. ends in eighty six. Oh, okay. Oh, so maybe. Silver Age yeah. usually starts in I forget if it's fifty four or fifty six when the Flash is revived in Showcase. You know, so that's a very expensive mm -hmm. issue. Showcase number four, I think. I don't know. Now I'm showing okay. my lack of collector um, knowledge, but. The the Flash, the, the new Flash, the guy in the red costume rather than the guy in the silly helmet, and who's Barry Allen. The beginning of Barry Allen Flash is usually viewed as the beginning of the Silver Age. And then okay. yeah, you're, yeah. the superheroes okay. after that were slowly revived. They brought back the Justice League. And then eventually Marvel started their whole line of superheroes. And then some people say the okay. Silver Age began... I mean, sorry, sorry. The Bronze Age began when Jack Kirby moved to DC. Other people view seem to view okay. the first issue of Conan maybe as the beginning of the Bronze Age. Other people huh. seem to view the issue of Superman where he's breaking kryptonite chains and it says kryptonite no more as the first. That's what I usually see as the um, marking that or the something around the Flash. There's something about the Flash that seems to kick things off. Then nobody cares. The Flash kicked off the Silver Age, maybe it kicked off the Bronze Age. It, and wasn't uh when he died around when the Bronze Age started? When he died? He died in the Crisis of Infinite Earths, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. wouldn't that be a When it ended. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting endings and beginnings confused here. I don't care about the Flash. It's my problems. This is hard for me to tackle. Well, we're here to talk about Daredevil. Um, so I forget why we got into that. Who's like the visual equivalent from an artist standpoint of the Flash in the Marvel Universe right. because they're so red. So my main point is that the the first really noticeable thread of what became the dark age of comics begins in my opinion with frank miller and daredevil you, another way to view it is in the golden age comics were in theory superhero comics were maybe aimed at six and seven year olds and in the silver age maybe more at 12 year olds and maybe maybe nine to 12 year olds and the bronze age maybe 12 to 16 <laughs> and then when you get this Frank Miller and later, um, or not later, but also the Alan Moore stuff, and then all the stuff that came after that, it's really aimed at people in their 20s. Okay, Damien, so you're... I'm 58, so I'm not allowed to read any oh, of these things. I was going to say 40-something, <clears throat> and I was going to say, when, when were comics aimed at a... Yeah. Well, now they seem to be aimed at 50-year-olds, to tell the truth. Okay, yeah, it's funny how that works. In my... The comics I'm picking up are aimed at 30-year-olds, clearly. Uh -huh. <laughs> My Little Pony is a interesting thing to read at, at your midlife point, clearly. Ah, you're you're coming out at last as a brony. A what now? A brony? Uh, a boy who reads I don't think My I'm Little familiar pony? with this term. Oh, well, you should, you should learn. <laughs> oh, okay. Do they have a word for people who like m Mutant Ninja Turtles? 
yeah, we're called normal people with good taste. Uh. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's coming up to issue 100 this month. I am... And Tom Waltz is leaving, and then Sophie Campbell's taking over, and I have mixed feelings, because I love Sophie Campbell and her work, but... You should do a solo episode of this podcast where you give your opinion on the first 100 issues. Or I could do an episode of Wednesday's Serial. Ah, on your, uh, yes. Your, on your the video thing I have. On YouTube. Yeah. Um, God, I, I want to do a Turtles thing, but... It would be time I don't have. But I own 90-something percent of all Turtles comics, which is interesting because the first issue of the Ninja Turtles takes place very much in lieu of Daredevil, where there's a blind kid taking four turtles, and then he, they crash and land in the sewer, but uh, some chemicals splashes this kid in the eyes. Now, if you reach back to stan and who is the initial artist on daredevil uh bill everett bill everett. i have who's no also the is. creator of submariner back in the golden age what's a submariner the submariner i don't know namor oh namor namor yeah. the submariner um that's back when he didn't <clears> wear pants although there's some claim from jack kirby's old assistant that jack kirby did most of the visual design work on daredevil before bill everett drew it is this the same guy that was passing around the idea that jack kirby did most of the design work for spider-man before dicko took over i don't know who was passing around that idea so <laughs> but there's a fellow who's pretty convincing uh named mark evanier is that his, how you pronounce okay. the name evaner who who worked as an assistant for jack kirby in the late 60s early 70s and so he he tends to be someone who knows more than other people, but he probably doesn't know everything. He wasn't there in 1964, which is when Daredevil was created. The in it's interesting to me that Daredevil was created in that early period of, so it was kind of a core member of the Marvel Universe, but never that, somehow always managed to be a kind of a B character, a B-level character, until, uh, until Frank Miller sort of made him a wildly popular character and ever since he's been viewed as an important marvel character yeah um i i don't know about much of daredevil's legacy before uh frank miller i do know that there is a lot of artists passing around i know there's some crazy kooky stories i know that uh he kind of played similar to spider-man in some respects but kind of took more of the uh, crime and legal aspects more seriously so for those who don't know the general premise of daredevil is that he is someone who's blinded by that radioactive waste right as who's... like what a young teenager he he saved someone who's going to hit by a truck a blind man was going to be hit by a truck yeah, I thought he was a little younger than a teenager. And, but, but and yeah. was blinded by the radiation, the canister of radiation that fell off the truck. Right. and But all of his other senses took off. And so he's able to be kind of that blind ninja archetype, but in New York City. Right. And I don't know how early on they added in this radar power. So beyond sense beyond regular senses he has an extra sense of radar <clears throat> i guess it's kind of like echolocation in a way i guess but, like but he doesn't have to send out a little whale song to hear it come back to him right 
Right. He's just able to. He just sense seems it. to have radar. Um, yeah. But I don't. Well, I actually went back and I read the first issue by Stan Lee and Bill Everett, and in that it's okay. implied that the radioactive stuff also may have increased his intelligence and his agility. Like he was already working out, yeah. but now that he's been hit by the radioactive stuff, it's all falling into place even more. But I think that idea was dropped later. And they like to emphasize him as the guy who's just a regular human being, except that he has these extra senses. And he's and he's like peak human being, like almost Captain America level. But Captain America had a secret formula that made him strong. So I think of him as more like Batman, right. who trained himself to peak levels. Yeah, I, I've heard it referred to before as Daredevil as Marvel's Batman, yes. um, which I don't think is apt at all. They're oh, really? very different characters, and when you come to the idea of crime and how they handle it, have completely different perspectives. So, whereas, so first I want to talk about the blind aspect because I heard an interview with Stanley upon a day. Mm-hmm. So it's from Stanley's lips, so who knows how much truth it has. But he he said that he was kind of worried about putting out a blind character, especially as a comic book, because he didn't know how necessarily the blind community would react to it, you know, kind of putting forth this character that is to be a hero for them, but they can't necessarily, you know, enjoy. Because they can't see the comics? Is that what he means by can't right. enjoy? Right. Okay. Yeah. By and large, you know, people seem to be positive and they were happy that there is this character kind of making awareness, but also bringing positive associations to blind people and that they can do more. And it is true that, you know, when one becomes blind, you do rely on your other senses, so they do get better. But that's more of kind of a trained and necessary thing, not to a superhuman extent, right. obviously. But it often gives Daredevil an advantage at night or in a place where he can turn out the lights. So that's often how he takes advantage of, of his supposed weakness. Well, and it's crazy to see the stories where because Daredevil never announces that he's blind. Right. He's just wearing the mask and they look they have little eyelids. So everybody assumes and some of the stuff that happens like there's a story with him and Spider-Man dealing with arcade and arcades putting out all this you know or maybe it's mysterio i apologize um is putting out all this stuff and daredevil's trying to figure out why spider-man's freaking out because he can't see any of it (laughs) and so it's weird because he has to come to these realizations backwards but he's also not affected so people are trying to figure it out it it can be a fun thing to build into the stories when you're dealing with these villains that don't know it very true Um, so when Frank Miller came along, he he was an artist with just a teeny bit of comics experience. Mm-hmm. And um, they put an experienced inker on him, who was a popular inker, Claus Jansen, to kind of fix up his art a bit. And also Daredevil was not that popular of a comic at the time, and it was only published every other month. Roger McKenzie was originally the writer for the first 10 issues or nine issues that uh, Miller drew. Although looking at it, I realized, so he started in issue 68, issue 58, sorry. And by issue 65 and maybe earlier, he was a co-plotter. And I noticed that his art kind of jumped up a level once he was a co-plotter. 
the dynamics, you know, with like the breakdown of panels and the action, the kinetic action that Frank Miller's kind of known for in this era of Daredevil really started yeah. taking off. So I have this theory that he's such a natural storyteller that the more involved he is in the storytelling, the better his art becomes. Yeah, there's definitely a level of investment here. And um, I, I wanted to point out before we got too much further, the other thing that for people who don't know that's big about Daredevil is by day, he's a lawyer. Yes. And that plays into a lot of the stories. He's often, he's a defender. So he's often defending criminals in court or people accused of being criminals in court that he then is involved in as Daredevil at night. Often his play into the larger Marvel universe isn't as Daredevil, but as Matt Murdock, his normal name, um, because whenever they need a lawyer in a story, they pull Matt Murdock up until She-Hulk came around and she was the other lawyer that they pull at times when oh, right, they just wanted right. to not pull Matt. And then, of course, there's stories where Matt Murdock and She-Hulk have been at it in court against each other as well. Um, but... It, it, if you if you look at superheroes and kind of kind of what they bring to it a blind character is something in and of itself and normally that would be enough for you to kind of have a superhero that stands out true um true. but then to have the lawyer aspect which is enough on its own to combine the two there's a lot there and i I just think that's something that helps make Daredevil come out, and it's kind of mystifying that it took so long for this character to get his legs. Because there's a lot there to work with. Right, but it seems like the standard Marvel hero thing just didn't quite click with this character who's a blind lawyer. Even though it was kind of a brilliant setup, like you're pointing out, so we should give a lot of credit to Stan Lee and whoever else helped him or didn't help him with that those ideas but um but it seems like when frank miller hit upon kind of this noir underworld kind of world for him to inhabit and there again i think is why people compare him to batman once frank miller took over that that his character really took off when given this setting which you know we can see Throughout Frank Miller's career, he's very interested in that noir crime setting. Um, but this was his first chance to bring it into comics. Right. So I do want to say part of the reason I think people compare Batman to Daredevil is because of Frank Miller. Because so much of Frank Miller's visual language and how he does characters was developed in Daredevil. And then Frank Miller redefined Batman as well. And so you have that right. that creator connection between these two Marvel and DC characters. Because Frank Miller is known for Daredevil, Batman, and Sin City. Right. And he's done other works, but the, those, those are, the biggest, are yeah, yeah. That's the majority of his output. So, um, I think people at the t in my memory at the time when this was coming out and becoming intensely popular, people kept saying Frank Miller's doing Batman right and DC's doing it wrong. So it was interesting <laughs> when <laughs> DC hired Frank Miller, and then very that's shortly after hiring him, got him to do some Batman. It's interesting because, I mean, to talk about Frank Miller, I mean, he's done a lot of stuff that people don't like as much lately. But when you reach back to what made him this icon in comics, um, it was this Daredevil run that brought him up. 
but his Batman works are things that are considered to be must-read comics. Even on top 10 lists, two of his Batman works are on most of them. Year One and Dark Knight Returns. And that's fascinating to me, because by my estimation, I think his run on Daredevil is more fascinating, more interesting, and it's longer run, so there's more to dig into. But also, I think Ronan is probably his strongest work overall but no one seems to think much of it right but for me it's clearly the work that inspired the ninja turtles the most so <laughs> so that get, makes it really important although th- did ronin come out before the ninja turtles it's pretty sure when did ronin okay. come out? Uh, i mean because the ninja turtles were obvious don't make me question my entire life here Hold on. <laughs> the ninja turtles were obviously a reference to the stuff that had gone on in Miller Miller's first daredevil run with all the ninjas and the hand and stick and yeah stick splinter and then um and then obviously a reference to the popularity of the x-men at the time with the whole quote mutant thing although Uh, maybe yeah although maybe it was just a passing reference because mutants were so popular and maybe really their big influence was frank miller so Ronan came out in 83 through 84. So yes. And, and um, when did uh, Ninja Turtles first come out? 85? 80. There's a little of contention around some of that. Oh, but I mean, the first issue is like 84. Okay. So almost, they must have been working on it as while picking up issues of Ronan coming out of the store. Well, sure, but I mean, keep in mind, Turtles... Um, Which doesn't negate the fact that probably it had a lot of influence on them. But as did, I think, yeah. a, like the issues that we're supposedly focusing on, and I'm, I wish I'd read more yeah, of the run for this episode, but the issues we're focusing on are less involved with the stuff that fed into the Turtles, the whole stick and hand stuff comes right after this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, I just can't not talk about turtles. Um, is there's a I did read a few issues going into the whole hand and stick, well into the hand anyway, and there was a a guy named Kurgi. I wondered if he was some inspiration for Shredder, but I don't know. I on some level maybe. Um, there, what's there's so much going on these even six issues that we talked about, but what I think we should also mention is. Frank Miller before taking over because you said the first six issues of him writing what's interesting is Frank Miller took over the writing and principal art duties that's what we're talking about but before that as a literal who coming into it before that he was doing pencils just kind of a standard comic book work before that in Daredevil and he kind of just took over the whole Daredevil operation right which is i can't think of any other time that's happened in comics what do you mean like the writer takes over i mean the artist takes over as writer yeah well as writer and artist continuing well i mean you you have you have cases of artist writers throughout comics history well sure but where they come in on a book to just kind of do the duty and then they just take over the book basically I can't yeah, think I'm of any other. I'm trying to think if there were others before him. Before or after. 
Well, I mean, after him, John Byrne started doing more and more writing. And I think it might have been partially his success. Sorry, Miller's success as a writer that that made them let Byrne take a crack at it. And Byrne did pretty well at, for quite a while. What did Byrne draw and write at the same time? Uh, the first thing that I remember is Fantastic Four. Hmm, cool. Which was probably, uh, I don't know when that started, but it probably might have started in the middle of Miller's Daredevil run. <clears throat> okay. And then he... Um, and then after that, he always wrote what he drew and drew what he wrote. Uh, cool. And when was it? 80. When did he move over to DC? I guess that was 86. 86. Best year in comics. <laughs> so they say. Um, so I say. But 19. Was this 80 or 81 when he took over? Oh, yeah. Yeah. This predates that by a bit. No question. Now, I have to admit, like with some other things that I've picked out, I have a nostalgic side to all of this because in college, after I'd given up on comics for a year, for maybe two to three years, I got super back into comics because of the uh, Miller Daredevil run. And the very first one I picked up just happened to be number 68, the one where he first started writing and where he introduces um, Elektra. Which, wow, yeah. And what's crazy to me reading this now is to, like, I'm sure to you this felt more like a revolution, but to me, I'm coming back. And to be clear, I um, I had to collect this run through old um, Marvel Visionaries trades. Uh-huh. So this is Visionaries Volume 2 with Frank Miller, because uh, Volume 1 collects his penciling duties. Right. Okay. Volume 2 is where it starts being, you know, where he took over which goes into volume three and then you collect later when he came back to do the he came um, back twice he did it with david mazzucchelli and then he did it with john ramita right um and so but there's that big arc where kingpin like brings him down to nothing and this this is the start of something where i'm reading it where i don't know there's nothing that's particularly like they're good comics, but there's nothing like so fascinating or so event or so so stand out. They're just good comics, and bit by bit, character by character, he builds and he builds and he builds, and it's the best kind of serialized storytelling. Each issue is its own installment, but each installment builds, and you want to see the consequences and continuation next, and. It I sh- it should be noted he packs more into a page than most creators did and certainly do now, and each issue had more pages and so like there's so much in each issue. Each issue now feels like the equivalent of like three issues. You know, like it's and you can so well much. you definitely see him develop like that very first issue. Oh yeah, with Electra. You can see he has this. He he's setting up something he's going to do work with later by adding this new layer to um, Matt Murdock's life because he basically um, retrofits Matt Murdock's past to include this love who was the a daughter of a Greek millionaire and, and industrialist or something who gets killed and who goes off and becomes an assassin, and so then they have this tragic reunion where they're on the opposite sides of the law so to speak but they still love each other 
Right. And I I want to point out too, this is 81. Okay, 81. And or yeah, that issue is. Yeah. Um and so we talk about diversity in comics, but like to a lot of people now, Electra just feels like another white woman there, but she is decidedly Greek. Right. Which you didn't see. How many see other before. Greek how many other Greek comic characters can you name? How many other Greek characters can you name that are not from my big fat Greek wedding? Just because I'm counting that out because that's too obvious. Right. Um, it's just, it is diversity in a certain way. And for 81, he was kind of expanding the palette and he was creating a f- strong female character. Right. Um, though in this issue, she does kind of fall to being lovesick, which is interesting because as we develop, Electra becomes basically stripped of emotion. But, I mean, there is always that whole connection with Matt in the first place, or they wouldn't be in the same comic together. That kind of uh, love where you end up on the different sides of the struggle to, is an important element of who Electra is. Maybe she got very stripped of emotion further on down the line. I mean, Frank Miller also did an Electra mini series and all of that, but. Yeah, he retools the character after she's reborn. Okay. After Bullseye. Okay. Spoilers from before I was born, but uh, uh, Bullseye kills right. Electra. But in a sense, when Frank Miller comes back to Electra after killing her and she's reborn, yeah, that is a different Electra. That's not the Electra of this Daredevil saga. <laughs> right, yes. Um, but so, yeah, the first issue that he wrote which is called Electra is a very dense story that tells a whole, creates a whole new background backdrop. And mm-hmm. it, it is very wordy and has a lot of explanations and is of things that maybe more than you need. But as a few issues later, he's already becoming less wordy and more stripped down. But even during this Electra issue, it is a more wordy issue, but the visuals here stand out. It is interesting that when a lot of artists go to writing duties, even if they're still not doing the art, like uh, Jim Lee doing Wildcats, it becomes words everywhere. It's crazy. Um, But I think they felt to prove you were a writer, you had to put a lot of words on the page. Which is fascinating because they're artists, so they should know the balance They should know, but, but the standards were different back then and they wanted to prove themselves. I this is a real aside, but uh, I guess it applies in a way. I read a an interview with Denny Denny O'Neill talking about when he first worked at Marvel, I guess in the mid '60s, before he went over to DC. Stan Lee told him there was a general rule of thumb that you should have at least twenty units of text on each page. What's a unit? So I'm assuming a unit means a caption, a thought balloon, or a word bubble. Okay, it's so like a sentence. A sentence, usually, yeah. But 20 different bits of text scattered across the page. And you weren't considered to have done your job as a writer if you didn't have, you know, a lot of text on that page. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of, when certain artists started uh, doing their own writing, there was a lot of argument about whether they should be paid for wordless pages, whether they should be paid the writer's fee for that page. Okay. That's fascinating. Because if, if you look at the history of comics, it was done in a factory-like way. The writer right, did right. his factory job, and the inker and the colorist and the penciler and everyone put in their bit. And everyone's on a page rate. Right. 
And so if you were doing that Alpha Flight issue where it's all white, the artist yes. wouldn't get paid. And I diddly. think there was a big fight with him over that issue too. To be fair, that issue. Maybe he should yeah. have been paid so much. <laughs> I, mean, I can't remember what the resolution two, right? on that but, one was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, his art is already getting more kinetic. But then even by the next issue after that, which features Bullseye insane and on a killing spree where he sees everybody on in New York as being Daredevil. I thought that was a real turning point in the vision. Like Miller's already sort of in his second issue of writing really um, amping up the visuals to go with, with his story. You say amping up, but like um, even in the second issue, uh, there's this little bit where um, Daredevil's running past this old man who's jogging to, you know, keep up. And Daredevil's running past him and then, like, sprinting up a bridge faster than this guy can run. Right. And the facial expressions in here alone sell the moment. That's the issue I'm talking about, right? The bullseye issue? Uh, or are you talking about set by second issue, second issue of your first volume? Sorry, second issue of my... No, it is the bullseye one where bullseye's introduced. Yeah. Um, yes. But I, so I what I'm thinking like, is, as he goes along, he's getting he, very quickly getting better and better at integrating the art and the story. So he relies on words. I mean, he never stopped being wordy compared to modern comics. But he and every page is dense with events. But he relies on words less and lets the pictures well tell the story, the psychology of what's going on more I, as he. Mm-hmm. As he goes, as he goes, the the close ups on people's eyes and all kinds of things like that. I I do see some of what you're saying, though. I do think that first issue is just more narrative because it's a romance story. Well, true, and so there's less action, and, and and he has the goal of redoing Daredevil's personal history or Matt Murdock's personal history. Yeah, one issue. But I mean, if if you turn to any one of these pages, like there's exceptions where the action stands out. There's not a lot, but pretty much every page is pretty darn wordy if you look uh, i probably don't have the same page numbers as you if you look in the in the second issue that he's writing there's pages like this where i'm showing you five or six panels in a row without any dialogue and it's very dramatic they're small panels so a lot is told in those panels that's the other thing is he does a lot of small paneling work so when the action comes he'll do a lot of small panels to like move through almost kaleidoscope-esque like you're just getting a beat really he's quick playing with your sense of time and emotional involvement in the story with the way he breaks down the action into the panels and it makes it it makes for a very intense experience reading and especially back then it made for a very intense reading for me and most pages have more panels than most comics yes yeah i mean okay this page has one two three four five six seven eight nine ten panels and i just randomly opened up to it um it happens to be this page where bullseye is going to kill his captives and Daredevil comes in. As yes, well. I just went past that one. It's so good. Uh, another great sequence. These are, is, some um, of these are very Steve Ditko-esque looking too. Just looking at that page I just mentioned. You think? Like these characters that Bullseye has kidnapped, to me, they look right yeah. out of a Steve Ditko book. I mean, Steve Ditko did do Daredevil here and there. Um, but 
I feel like Frank Miller has does better character work, not only in motion, but also in distinguishing mm-hmm. between characters. But but I think that there is a strong Steve Ditko influence. Sure. That, that some of these things, I mean, there's a huge Will Eisner influence too. I see more Ditko in Eisner than I do like Kirby. Um, I think there, yeah, the Kirby influence is, is more minor. There's a lot of an artist you're probably not that familiar with, Gil Kane influence there is there's also an influence from i cannot pronounce the name but the guy who did lone wolf and cub had miller discovered that yet i at this point i believe so okay. i mean he, i know he, he did as before he did ronin but i didn't know if right. he had discovered lone wolf and cub maybe i'm wrong there but i mean i i there's something i mean i feel like there but has you might to be right you, you may know a lot and... more about lone wolf and cub than i do well i mean i've read a bit I haven't read as much as I'd like, but at this point, it's not whether or not that it's more um, it's it's more the fact that Frank Miller is bringing in this Eastern influence and kind of despite the fact that there shouldn't be ninjas here, there are he's bringing in some of the visual style ninjas don't come in until so officially we're reviewing up to number 173. The ninjas come in in 174. That's the first appearance of ninjas. Not to contradict you, but it might, it could be that at this point, he's just beginning to discover Japanese In talent. the issue where Kingpin is introduced as a threat, which is the third one in, I believe, there's some in the bullseye, but there's this bit with Kingpin training, and there's all these martial artists there. Let me find and, and you yeah, have I remember him this... fighting a whole bunch of people. I can't remember if they were like ninjas. Whether or not they're ninja, they're martial arts practitioners. They're wearing the geese. They're wearing the sashes. They have nunchucks and swords and right. I'm now looking at they have nunchucks and staffs. So it's like something out of a Bruce yeah. Lee movie. Someone with a boken. Maybe I'm wrong. But he is. Is he in Japan? Yeah, he he's living in Japan. In fact. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so Miller but, very quickly brought in a international feel. You got a Greek person, then you get the Japanese mm-hmm. influence. But sorry, just to quickly go back to Ditko, I feel like Ditko yeah. has a bit of this you timing by using the panels, creating time go quicker or slower through the panels. Now, Will Eisner also had that. Right, but yes, so you can definitely see Ditko in some of the like movements or generally and i think dicko actually comes out a bit more and you get to some of the legal sequences gil kane is throughout and maybe you could point out more of the gil kane influences but again in this kingpin training sequence um and it's more in uh miller's black and whites so there's this sequence where um kingpin turns around to address someone and the the great paneling goes across him so there's kind of like a cross across his forehead and then on his shoulder and that kind of look, that exact panel, is so samurai manga. It's just, it definitely feels out. Even if, even if that's not the case, I'm historically, you know, shifting things. Right. Well, that's very indicative. My feeling from interviews that I seem read a long time ago with Miller was that he was discovering things right as he was doing them. So he may have discovered some Japanese comics right as he started writing or maybe a little before and dis- was discovering more it was it, he was living in new york city where you might be able to find imports of things and right and martial arts movies 
probably were just fading out, but New York was the kind of place where you could see movies from other countries a lot more than in other parts of the United States. Because you got to remember, yeah. there's no internet. There's not even VCR. What? There's not even VCRs at this What's point. a VCR? <laughs> or maybe there are VCRs, but the VCRs are just beginning. Right, right. Betamax? Um, so most people, if they were lucky, had HBO um, as beyond their broadcast. HBO's TV. before VCRs? Yes. Huh. Okay. Was MTV out? I don't think so. I think MTV was about 1983, 84. Huh. Maybe it started late 82 at most man the world before me was terrible <laughs> you guys are all lucky i showed up um <laughs> yes you were born and then abundance according to my parents the world got better that's all <laughs> i know you know well, that's good uh, yeah i i so we've been talking so much around everything of frank miller's run because i i think that's part of what makes it stand out is these actual daredevil comics when they're coming up like i said aren't event-esque aren't anything they're just kind of a revelation of comic book storytelling and if you're a fan of comic books reading frank miller's run on daredevil is something you should do and i wanted to you said you came to Frank Miller's run because of college. Did you have a friend that pointed it out to you? It wasn't because of college. I was in college. I was well, probably, a, okay. I guess, a sophomore. I had thought it was my freshman year, but in 1981, I would have been a sophomore. But I discovered a comic book shop was in downtown, away from the college campus. And I discovered it. And uh, in there, I stumbled across frank the frank miller comics and i feel like right around the same time i stumbled across um the early alan moore comics in warrior warrior magazine um but i'm not sure the timing of that i think the frank miller came a little before warrior um in my at least at my comic shop warrior was a british magazine that had u.s distribution at comic book shops which mm-hmm. in 1981, a comic book shop was still very exciting to find. Yeah, and the lineage of Warrior Magazine has a lot. And so I, I don't know. I I know I picked up 68. I might have picked up 67 first, but I don't know at what how, how quickly it hit me. Suddenly, I was in love with comics again, and I started buying huge amount of comics from this comic book shop. Okay. I didn't realize they came out every week, though. I, I don't remember what my perception of it was. But in any case, um, I did not miss an issue. I read this from be- the Miller run, this first Miller run from beginning to end off the newsstand racks. And there were, wow. you know, as I was discovering it, everyone else was, too, because very shortly there were all these interviews with Frank Miller all over the place in any fanzine you'd pick up or comics journal or, or um, what have you. And all of a I, sudden I, they were having Frank Miller do the covers of all kinds of Marvel comics. Have you talked about, I've listened to you talk about comics for hundreds, <laughs> if not thousands of hours. And I feel like I've never heard this at all huh. before. This is fascinating. So this, you know, there's a classic thing where people give up comics for a while. So when I, turned, yeah, I don't understand when that. I turned 16 and I got my driver's license, I sold all my comics for gas money. And I told myself I was too old to read comics and that girls wouldn't like me if I read comics. And I think I still did uh, read some during that period. But from about 78 to I thought 80, but maybe 81, 
I didn't read very many comics. And then I, I was hit like a truck <laughs> by uh, Frank Miller's uh, <laughs> Daredevil, and I just <laughs> fell head over heels. And I, I collect. I started rebuying stuff that I used to like, and I bought tons of Marvel in particular that came off the shelves. Um, and and Alan then followed Alan Moore wherever I could, and that kind of thing. Your your supposed greatest writer in comics. Yes, history. my supposed greatest writer. It's like you never heard of Dan Slott. Um, and so, so I wanted to say we were sort of looking at number sixty nine. Hold on, hold on. With because I got bullseye. I got to do my. Or you want to go back? You have more to say about the no 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 electric. So no oh, something um, else. All right. How I came to the Frank oh, I'm Miller sorry. Daredevil comics. <laughs> I didn't think you counted. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, because it's something, it's not quite your story of refinding comics, but when I was working on doing Ashcans and I was in the local comic scene where I am, much more heavily. So, uh, you were working on your own comics when you say yeah. working on Ashcans. Okay. Yeah, working on Newt Man and uh, Mitch Middle Class Merc. Um, and other smaller things with various people. I was talking with uh, Layla Del Duca, ah, who yes. you might know from Shudder and some other comics, and uh, Lonnie motherfucking Allen, Lonnie M.F. Allen, as we know him <laughs> around the scene, who's a pillar of Denver comics, along with uh, back in the day, like Noah Van Skyver. It was a scene, man. It was a scene. Um, Noah Van Skyver was part of the, at the time you were doing self-published yeah. comics, he was there? Yeah, he pulled me in uh, at the first con I went to that I was helping run, actually, um, by because I was wearing a Spider-Man shirt, and he huh. was like, hey, you like Spider-Man? Did you ever hear about the real Spider-Man? <laughs> I was like, no, what? So there's this guy in Denver who was living in someone's attic and would just crawl down and like grab food and then come up and it took him like months to figure out that this guy was just living in their attic and that's oh the God. real <laughs> spider-man oh and he was covered in a noah does um noah does a lot of things a lot of fascinating stuff do not judge him by his brother it, completely different entities especially creative output right and uh he his big thing was this comic called blamo where he just kind of did short stories kind of whatever came to him and every issue had a number of things and uh is noah van skyver kind of like a cross between robert crumb and um harvey picar kind of a modern version of them he's done some autobiographical stuff but he does a lot more uh like he's done a biography of lincoln he's done a lot of more slice of life comics. i've seen some autobiographical comics and i've seen this thing called fonte bukowski where he makes fun of yeah. pretentious writer types that's and that's that's like autobiography At a by way of fiction right. yeah it's he's partially making fun of himself perhaps it's self-deprecating humor mixed in with a bunch of other things it's it's interesting um I did not know he did history comics. So, but the reason I, I just want to place him Noah a little bit because he as, hates me. But he's not like Lela Del Luca Del Duca, who went into what you'd call mainstream indie comics. He's kind of a more underground kind of guy. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, but Lonnie is truly underground. So he does like he, he puts out a newspaper in Denver that's like just all comics material, maybe some poetry or whatever. And like does that he works with a lot of local artists and he's put out his own independently published comics and a lot of fascinating stuff. He actually had a backup in one of the issues of Shudder. If you oh, go through that, I don't okay. know if those are in the trades or not. Yeah, he does a lot of cool stuff. He's a great pillar for the scene. Great guy cool. in general. I have hours of me interviewing the two of them on my channel years back. Oh, really? But, um, so I need to dig back deeper in your channel. It's probably painful to watch, man. Uh-huh. Uh, interviewing Lonnie and Ethan or Lonnie and mm. Layla? Lonnie and Layla. Uh-huh. We were basically turned on a camera, got drunk, and went. Huh. Uh, it's like four hours or something. It's ridiculous. Um, when I first got to know you, I did go back and watch some of your earlier videos, but I missed those. I'm going to have to dig deeper. I don't know. Eh, whatever. I mean, I'm sure most of my videos are not worth going back to. Um, they all but, are worth All Everyone listening uh, should go oh back and dig deep into Wednesday. Yeah, go through. God, I wonder how many hours I've recorded that are up. That sounds like a pain to go through because most of it's just what happened that week right there's some videos that right. like stand out but that's not even so we're tying this into how you first discovered frank miller's daredevil so i asked because you know i kind of asked people like what comics do you love da, da, da. you know looking for recommendations when it comes from someone who's accessing comics differently than you it's fascinating and so i asked lonnie you know what's his favorite and he's like frank miller's daredevil but he was like in particular it was that um I can't remember. Was it um, Born Again? Born Again with David Mazzucchelli, where he hits bop, yeah. rock bottom, and yeah. Kingpin so he was one. saying that in, he said that in particular, but he said Frank Miller's Daredevil Run in particular is something you should check out. So I found some cheap copies of uh, Visionaries, and that's how I came into it. And then from there, I kind of did. Got you read Born Again Daredevil first? As a character. No, I. I you kinda, did it in order. Well, I, I got the Frank Miller stuff. Um, th- I got the three visionaries and then I got born again. Okay. Not necessarily because they were in order though, but because I could get each one of those for $5 a pop and then born again cost me $25. Ouch, 25. Wow. So I had to know I wanted it, I guess. Uh, but it might be useful. I, I don't know. I would think it might be useful to have read his first run before reading born again. Well, I, I think it builds to it. I don't think Born Again has the same punch if you don't do that, but it is one of the greatest little like, comic arcs right. of all time. So I genuinely, genuinely would take pretty much any of Frank Miller's Daredevil work over any of his Batman work. I, I well, just I have a strong have affection love... for year, Batman Year One, but it, I think overall there's so much more going on in Daredevil. Because he did so much more Daredevil. It's so much more my speed. I just... Yeah, his Batman stuff's good. I'm not going to say it's not, but I don't think it's his best stuff. Hmm. I don't... You know, I make these huge judgments about uh, Alan Moore, but I don't feel... I don't feel educated well enough. I don't have clear enough thoughts on Frank Miller to say what his best work is. Well, Frank Miller... Frank Miller, by and large, has done less work to actually pour through that's true but it's harder to compare because i mean when you get to the best frank miller stuff he's the principal creator he wrote drew and didn't necessarily color or ink it 
but also he does have a lot of um collaboration beyond like when it's pure frank miller doing it you get like sin city or um oh, what was that one the holy 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 terror that dc one did anyone yeah. actually read that i i glanced at it at yeah. barnes and noble and decided not to buy it but i want to read it someday uh, maybe, maybe we should maybe um, we you know maybe because of the political stuff around it everyone uh, misinterprets it well <clears throat> it was there and it, it's funny because i went through frank miller's blog one day his blog really knew. yeah um it, it's kind of fascinating to hear because it's all from his later career and so holy terror he definitely was in some politics but he did come to it later he's like you know a lot of people push some reading on me and da 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 and he's like I, i've kind of come around on some of this stuff however holy terror is very much where he was at the time and he was did say like this is very much a reaction to 9 11 right. that was lacking and i do still stand by that well and he is someone who is brought to comics i think a willingness to explore the dark side of all this violence that's in comics which i think is what made i don't even think you'd have like the modern day punisher without him i think before that punisher was kind of a blander i don't character. think you'd have alan moore without him being accepted in america maybe being accepted so. in america i mean they're so contemporary that it's hard for me to parse that out but are they alan moore didn't come over till later i think he came over to swamp thing in 82 or 83 but swamp thing what's that right like Sorry. i said his his work at warrior was being read by people in the united states the right. hardcore uh, comics people but Britain's like an indie aisle where like at best you're getting so a, uh, you know if you look dynamite. at miracle man and v for vendetta those are exploring mm. the violent side mm. of comics too although well miracle man all great v for vendetta feels to me like um more of what i'd like to see more of in comics which is something that has touches nothing on superheroes or any of that it is just a story using the medium mm -hmm. and moving moving with that but it is not it's not the rest of it it just happens to be done by these creators i i i these something else to me yeah Though i wish i could get a black and white copy i hate the coloring on it they really should have they released a black and white because they should since it was initially black and white anyway it was drawn to be black and white or recolor it so it doesn't look stupid that that would also work for me but so you haven't have you finished your story on frank miller mm -hmm. yeah and at that time had you already read later daredevil that was influenced by frank miller the darker stuff I don't believe okay. so, but I did go and um, I found an eBay bid. And so I got the max volume of Daredevil. So it had um, I, what I had read before Miller was the Kevin Smith Daredevil. Uh -huh. But the box I got after had like Bendis and Brubaker da, 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 through Diggle. And that run of Daredevil is also something that people point to a lot. That's a lot of creators, but it's a. It's a hell of a run and just stop before Shadowland and you're fine. Okay. Well, I should try it sometime. I actually just, in my Damien way, you thought, well, I've read it all in Frank Miller Daredevil. I don't need to read any more Daredevil. And I didn't That's... read any other Daredevil until Mark Wade's Daredevil, which was advertised as now we're going to be bright and shiny and fun. So I thought, okay, well, that's a new Daredevil. I'll try that. 
But, oh, man, Mark Waits was a reaction to all that yeah. other stuff more so than Miller. Because Miller actually blends a lot of positivity in, especially in these so. early issues. I mean, one of the things that Daredevil was sold as before Miller was he was a bright, cheerful kind of pirate <laughs> or, you know, Errol Flynn dashing kind of character he was supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, which maybe didn't work as well with the blind lawyer fighting crime at night as when Frank Miller took him in this darker, more noir direction. Okay, I have two questions for you the, for the character before Miller took over. Yes. One, did Miller introduce Kingpin to being Daredevil's enemy? I believe so. I think Kingpin was only... Okay. Uh, he stole him from Spider-Man in a sense. And thank goodness... I. <laughs> I say this as a huge Spider-Man fan. Kingpin and Daredevil is such a revelation. Kingpin and Spider-Man feels ridiculous, more so than the kangaroo. Like, uh, But Kingpin is a great character, and he was created in Spider-Man. Sure, like all great Marvel <laughs> characters. Um, but anyway, Frank Miller found all kinds of new uses for him. But So the, uh, we were talking about violence, and can I just... I bring it back to this Derrida, this uh, bullseye issue strikes yeah. me as, as I reread it as maybe the beginning of the kind of violence that we're now is standard in comics in this one issue, which I think was very odd for 1981. We have bullseye just kill large numbers of bystanders, um, mm -hmm. but it's at More a so personal level. It's not episodes. like, galactus sucking up a planet or something it's no you, you watch them right it's violent it's not statistics right. people are killed one after the other just because this guy's insane and is killing people and i don't think that's something i don't think you had that kind of body count before and i think they used to leave it vague whether people were actually killed or not you know they were just punched and then it, but here it's just it's this visceral body count and and it's horrifying that this guy is out there just killing people this guy with super killing powers is out there killing people and daredevil has to stop him and it's edge of your seat and i feel like that i mean maybe at the time it didn't have that influence but that was frank miller bringing in that like i said that willingness to sort of explore the dark side of these heroes and villains at a level that, you know, coming out of the regular Bronze Age was not something they did. The Bronze Age was a bit darker than the um, than the Silver Age. And you did in the Bronze Age have Conan killing people a lot and you had Dracula killing people a lot. But in the superhero comics, I don't think you had this level. And I'm sure someone out there will tell me I'm wrong and point to some other comic. But that's how it struck me. And it struck me that now, you know, like the way the Joker is or whom have you, you know, there's just this visceral, evil killer kind of thing. Well, it, what's fascinating, too, about you saying that is this is very much the early 80s kind of comic book violence, which is harkening back to the old horror comics uh, kind of violence that predates the code, where there's actually not a whole lot of blood. They weren't allowed to show the blood. Right. So it's a lot of implication, but like it's it's that famous cover where 
the woman's head is being held up and there's the axe, mm-hmm. but you don't see the motion or anything. Right. It's just the implication of this idea that gets you almost more viscerally than if you had kind of seen a kind of hackneyed way and of the, doing it. The comics code would not allow you to show a blade going in into the body and coming out the other side. So mm-hmm. there's the famous scene where Bullseye kills Elektra and the blade just pushes her clothing out on the other side. Because that's all Frank Miller was allowed to do. But in this issue, Daredevil wants to kill Bullseye, but doesn't. That whole, and and he spends two pages on it. That whole idea that you want to kill these villains also feels very new and different to me. But I, I feel like the lack of gore almost makes it more pronounced. Yes. Because you see so much, and frankly, the way that, like, if you look at, like, a... um. Uh, who's doing spider-man now otley ryan otley page the blood gets in the way of seeing what you're doing because it's still motion so if they explode out the blood it it can take up like a eighth of the panel right and so you kind of see the motion and whereas like a trickle or something might make it and you definitely can see more horrifying images and these aren't as horrifying necessarily but it's so much more visceral gore seems too easy gore seems like the the easy way out to whereas because of the comics code miller was forced to find other ways and i think that does make them a little more powerful happy halloween everyone And so then the third issue he writes, which is the introduction of Kingpin back into the story, mm-hmm. on the the, uh, one, two, the third page of that issue, he sneaks in the background a billboard that says the spirit on it, mm-hmm. uh, letting us know if we hadn't already guessed, which I didn't at the time. But then once he started saying it in interviews, I saw his um, Will Eisner, the spirit influence which unfortunately culminated in him doing a directing a spirit movie, which was horrible, but um, that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Um, but what's fascinating here about the Kingpin is you, you have these people and there is something of a fight, but really the play of the Kingpin is playing his power and exercising over daredevil. Where like, if you want to exercise the most justice, you don't take me down today you do this right. who's my enemy it's going to kill you that you know you're helping me but you know it's also the right thing to do he it's so it's fascinating because even even in that moment where i feel like most artists would be you know talking head mode there's a shifting of scenes there's a use of uh shadows it's very it's very visually pronounced in a way that goes beyond what you normally see. And again, you get all that play of panels and the page layouts that we're talking about before. Like there's so much there for what's people law and ordering each other. And by that third issue, we start seeing him with bringing Kingpin and then bringing Bullseye back in. We're seeing these very layered, complex stories. And though Kingpin is this powerful, brutal almost juggernaut type of character in a way he mostly works through uh strategy and he's like a master chess player moving all the pieces even though he's also being emotionally manipulated over over the kidnapping of his wife so that 
we're getting really for comic books at the time we're getting a really layered and dark story that did not feel familiar to me at the time <laughs> from other comics other i should say other superhero comics although even if you looked at uh, alternative what alternative comics did exist at the time they went for pretty simple stories usually or you got your your kind of underground comics which you know, had different art styles and were shocking and different subject matter, but were not these complex layered stories. Right. And so, I mean, again, it's Miller elevating the form. Yeah. And although, I mean, he's never the artist that Will Eisner is, and Will Eisner is a master short storyteller, Will Eisner never has this complex of a plot either because Will Eisner works on a small canvas, at least... When we're talking about the spirit, Will Eisner hadn't even gone to his graphic novels yet at this point. Um, well, but Will Eisner has more visual dynamicism, but be, that's because he's doing straight cartooning. He, he he's he's allowed to play up those exaggerated characters, or whatever. Miller plays with a realism set, so he's not ever able to do that. But the amount that he does with that, and kind of the film techniques he uses that he brings in and all these other influences are pronounced and so well the film influence stuff is also there in eisner um they share that i would say but sure but miller is building and building and building on this larger larger canvas of longer stories because eisner's stories were seven pages at a shot and occasionally one would build on the other but mostly they were standalones and and miller has this like you said each issue has a story arc to it but then it also is part of a continuous story um so that you really miller is building up layers that i don't recall anyone else managing to do in comics american mainstream comics let's say because european comics or japanese comics may well have been doing the same things um, I, not on this level. I don't think so. Then you get, you know, four issues into his run and you have a very complex tale of um, gang warfare and what's going on in various people's lives. You do have this thing that I thought was really cool back then when I was 19 and 18, but don't anymore. This constant returning to the bar and beating up everybody in the bar and throwing people through the windows and it, that's pretty cool the, the stick of that wears thin on me more quickly maybe also because i you know read seven or eight or nine issues in a row rather than one every month but yeah i i think there's something to that the pacing does feel different because you are taking in all at once and so those motifs um read differently and this wasn't written for a trade at all right which is everything we it was get written to be read a month at a time so that familiarity um, would would play better, whereas now it, it can feel kind of overwrought because you're not reading a page, you're reading a trade or an issue, you're right. reading a trade. And by issue um, 172, which is the culmination of his fight, a first fight against uh, Kingpin, the, the, the comic also becomes more explicitly a comic book about the city. He puts in these extra panels about New York City and he talks about it and the... Um, the art, I think, becomes even more kind of noir and built on shadows. And so I think he's developing. An, so five issues into be, being a writer. I mean, he, these are his first time being a writer. 
he's he's layering in even more themes and stuff that like this some of the underworld scenes when he's down in the gutters and there's beggars down there i believe comes out of a will eisner story that i remember very vividly that they even used as uh, one of the covers of those will eisner uh, spirit reprints in the 70s but he's taking these kind of eisner elements and pushing them one further and making a portrait of New York City in a way. I mean, may already have been doing that, but it becomes even more explicit by that issue. And my God, look at the number of panels on some of these pages as we're, we're getting to climaxes and he uses more panels rather than less. Nowadays, they use less and less panels. And it seems to have much more drama with these multiple panels. Like when, when uh, Kingpin is shot, there's, there's uh, just four panels just to show Kingpin's reaction to getting shot. Yeah, which would be the equivalent of two panels. At most, ish. or maybe just yeah. one big panel of, you know, a, yeah. a full-page spread of Kingpin getting shot, and that would, and then move on to the next thing. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like his use of more panels of similar art with slight changing. It's almost like, it's almost like a stop frame yeah, animation. Like is. you're just seeing a little bit and it really builds a moment and a movement. And the fact that more people don't play on this sort of thing now, especially with digital right. art now, because in order to do that as an artist now would take not that much time. You can take the frame, copy it, alter it a little, move on. Right. And so... Yeah, but yeah. right, they had to draw every panel over again. and But they... Now, I have to say Frank Miller's not the only one who did this, but I think he he pushed it up to the next level. But I remember a lot of this kind of thing in Barry Smith's early Conan and in some work, believe it or not, by Rich Buckler, who you may not remember, but he's mostly remembered as more of a hack artist who copied other people's styles. But And maybe Mike Plug and some other people. Anyway, they the, during the 70s, there were various people who kind of played with the panels. But reading this now made me think, wow, it's, this is almost a lost part of the art form of really breaking down action with panels, either to intensify the action or intensify the emotion or just change the reader's experience. Yeah. And it means, because he does that so often, when there is a splash page, it really does pop. Right. It, it's really a play on pacing that we don't get. Yeah, it's... It's something else. Yeah, and I suppose artists now are always thinking about, or a lot of them are probably thinking about how well will this sell in the aftermarket, and pages with tons of panels don't sell well. But because he often doesn't even on a splash page do just one picture, he'll often have a double, double two panels on the splash page. You don't arrive at doing something like that because you're thinking, oh, what will sell? What's the most economic use of my time? You're thinking this works for the page this, this is from a love of comics because he's the writer and the artist and he was obviously just totally dedicated to doing the best story he could at the time right now in my omnibus is included some interviews from a cool. separate uh magazine that because daredevil is so popular they put out an index of frank miller's daredevil with interviews in it and I was reading it, and it reminded me that I also read these same kind of comments in other interviews that editor Denny O'Neill was a big co-collaborator on a lot of the plotting of this. 
And he even at one point says Jim Shooter would be in on the plotting sessions and, huh. and Claus Jansen so that um, he is listed as the writer. But there is a lot of it was a collaborative kind of thing. And maybe maybe the other people who had more experience than him helped push him. They saw all this talent and these great ideas, and maybe they pushed him a little bit. Denny O'Neill, well, at this point, was most famous for his run on Batman. So that might be another reason why people were equating this with Batman. I uh, I also think it's interesting, like, at Frank Miller's other works, um, when he's known for his best stuff, it's a deep uh, collaboration that gets his name top billing. But even his Batman stuff had you know plotting credits or whatever but what he's known for by himself becomes sin city basically right. and there was less editorial there and and sin city is is kind of cool up to a point in my opinion but also not as rich as this kind of stuff right and i think it, it, i think a lot of it's interesting because when you look at a lot of creators they tend to be more liberal leaning but i can imagine frank miller and danny o'neill in particular bringing a lot to the table because they're going to butt heads just enough to like come out with something stronger because they're going to think in ways that the other can't they're just politically diametrically opposed right. well i don't know 100 percent what frank miller's politics are but i mean he's clearly He's, he's rougher on crime for sure and maybe rougher on terrorists um but i don't and know all immigrants. his politics and people are complicated and before the trump era people were willing to be complicated now they're now that now it's either this or that yeah and I, i'm not saying conservative with like a sneer or anything he just he is and having read his thoughts on some of these things especially around holy terror like yeah right. he is um and it's not always coming from necessarily a bad place, but it is coming right. from, I mean, from a superhero standpoint, like these people did a bad thing. Let's go kick their freaking ass. Like it follows. And he moved to New York during a period where it was famous for its crime and he was mugged. I think this was around the time of Bernard Getz, who was the famous subway killer vigilante. And, uh, there was the whole vigilante movie thing going on in the 70s that probably influenced him. But I don't know. I mean, he never thinks it's a bad thing that uh, Daredevil works for free to help uh, mentally ill criminals and things like that. I don't think he... F I, I don't know. I don't think the Frank Miller of this time fits our current image of a classic conservative. But you've read his blogs more than I have, so I don't know. Well, but here's the other thing, too. You're talking about complicated people. Like... Yeah, he leans more conservative on a lot of talking points. But the thing is, is everybody, no one's the Republican falling line every time unless they're a Fox News commentator. Right. Like, um, and, and I mean, think about that. I mean, Frank Miller famously brought in partisan hack commentators to his Batman work. That's true. Um, and I mean, I, I think he's relatively more conservative but i think he's also on the line of the people or most of us are like what if we just hung all the politicians like frank miller introduced yeah. the idea that superman is a fascist and that was not a good thing <laughs> right which little x luthery but you can get where he's coming from but i think also frank miller had the capacity 
Frank Miller never really touched Lex Luthor, did he? But I think he had the capacity to make Lex Luthor look good. But I don't think that was the idea in... Uh, what I'm saying is in in the... He's not like a pro-authoritarian conservative. The yeah. evil, the Superman was the evil authoritarian. Um, anyway, so there's all kinds of shades of things that I never really, other than the fact that that he was more anti-criminal than your than Denny O'Neill might have been, or something. I never really, at the time I was reading these, felt I was reading conservative comic books. Yeah, I don't think that came through as much. The other thing that fascinates me is, which I didn't read enough of because I would taught, said we should just read the first six issues, is uh, right after the first six issues, he starts developing another mythos of the hand and stick. And so there's mm-hmm. these secret... Lo- and so there, I, th- I assume he really is reading a lot of uh, Japanese comics by this point, but maybe also movies. And he's playing with the visuals of ninjas, you know, in fights and stuff with swords and they're caught the way the costumes look visually and all of that kind of stuff, um, which probably leads into Ronin. But but again, he brings that in, but it's part of the layers layered into the rest of the world that he's also giving us. Well, you're showing me that ninja stuff and you see that stacked paneling where it's like six panels, but it's completely vertical. Right. Um, which is great for action sequences, which he's pulling from, but is actually used a lot by like Sal Buscema when you get to Spider-Man in the 90s and whatnot. Like that uh, that comes through more. That's interesting because Sal Buscema in the 70s would not have used those kind of panels. <laughs> one of the good things about Sal in particular was he was one of the artists that really did change over time much more than most. So yeah. by the 80s, Sal was being very influenced by um, Simonson, Walt Simonson, and maybe he was bringing in slowly get picking up stuff from Miller and other people who were coming along at the time. The most Sal stuff that I read was when uh, J.M. DeMatteis was working with him, and uh, that run on Spider-Man, yeah, how that wasn't amazing is beyond me. Yeah. Like that was the best at the time, no question. So, um, looking at which we weren't supposed to cover, but I, you may or may not have read Daredevil one seventy four, where where they first bring in the um the ninjas he's also and maybe some of this comes from other other sources along with those stacked panels you're talking about he's doing these sort of parallel action scenes like at the top and bottom panel on the page is what the ninjas are doing and then in the middle is what the people who aren't aware what aren't aware the ninjas are there are doing which in this case is um He's having a conversation with his um, law partner, Foggy, Foggy Nelson, and it goes yeah. on for several pages. It, he creates this kind of parallel comic book storytelling, which, again, you didn't see much of, if at all, in American comics before then. Yeah, it, it's all great stuff. And he keeps playing with it and he, he'll toy around with stuff. And it's just it's fun to look at. It's fun to read. And there's more there. And there isn't most things. And like I said, it's not it's not that any particular thing stands out as so great. It's just that every issue is strong and builds. And and every issue he seems to be adding new elements, both in story and in artistic approach. I love this one. This is the the issue after that, where 
Daredevil is stopping ninjas from killing Foggy Nelson, and and they're almost about to kill him, and Foggy never knows. <laughs> and the the pacing is again wonderful the way he lays out the panels. And when we were looking at um, early Ninja Turtles that you and I read, I mean I don't think they were the earliest, but they were near the beginning of the Turtles run. Yeah, I noticed a lot of paneling that reminded me of of the kind of paneling that. Miller does. Now, in my lack of education, he might have got those panels from Japanese artists, and maybe they, you know, so I don't know well, where they drew that I from. I mean, the turtle, the Eastman and Laird pretty much said, like, their love of Kirby and Frank Miller is what brought them together. So, yeah. Yeah. That's maybe one of the big differences between Eastman and Laird's art and Miller's art, is Miller does not have very much Kirby in his art. It seems like, like I said, Steve Ditko also feels a little bit like Neil Adams to some extent, a very loose. I could see that. Less, yeah. But, you know, Neil Adams always was very into the very flexible characters and the, um, you know, like see this panel right here. The kind of action scenes have a bit of a Neil Adams feel to them. Neil, well, old Neil Adams, of... not the way Neil Adams is now, but the 60s Neil and Adams. 70s Neil Adams. Neil Adams' Batman fought differently than most other people drawing Batman because he was more of an acrobatic fighter that fights more like how we understand Captain America would fight, where it's a lot of building momentum to hit hard and whatever. It's a very acrobatic and fluid That's thing. That's a good point. And his Batman is leaner. Right. And Daredevil and, uh, is a leaner hero. Yeah. But I think Daredevil's kind of understood to be kind of an acrobat lean like... Um, yeah and that billy club you know having the billy club as his tool kind of forces a uh different flow yeah yeah i i now i want to just not i want to keep reading frank miller's daredevil <laughs> and not read all the other comics i'm piling up it's a standout run from an era right before i feel like marvel had a whole run of standout like um when did claremont take over x-men Oh, Claremont would already be doing X-Men at this time. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to say Claremont took over X-Men in 78 or 79. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, but I mean, within years, you know, like, and Spider-Man had to be exploding at this time in a number of different ways, and you had all these other characters. Like, this was in the middle of a lot of great comics, but still stood out and was like the singular thing and since then has gone on to have a reputation beyond itself. I, I mean, I my memory might be wrong, but I kind of feel like once Miller's, and it didn't take long, I think, you know, once less than a year, yeah. once Miller's stuff was getting so much attention that other people started taking more risks. Like maybe that was when they made um, Tony Stark as alcoholism become explicit and ruin his life. Demon in the bottle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chris Claremont was doing a lot of important stuff too. And he was kind of miles ahead of everybody in a lot of ways, uh, very different ways than Frank Miller. But, well, it's, it's fascinating now to look at it because Claremont had like his run in Marvel in his own little corner right. of it where all these characters played off each other and be occasional tie ins or whatever. But, um, but I mean, this Miller thing really stood out and miller didn't really i mean because he was doing double duty whatever he didn't really do a ton else he did do though it should be noted that his first daredevil pages were in spider-man 
doing a uh oh really yeah a uh spectacular but he 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 was a fill-in artist spectacular issues and um so in this run spider-man is blinded by some goon yeah and, and these issues um the the key one being issue 27 which are some of the most expensive issues to go pick up were of frank miller being a guest penciler you know again when he's coming up but um it it was this daredevil stuff and it was a big spider-man daredevil team up yeah i I mean miller put his touch on it it was when miller really touched spider-man so it's kind of known for that um Uh, he later did some other spider-mans like marvel team up annuals or something i can't remember what yeah he might have done a little more I, I know he did a little more work here there later, but I, it's a notable bit. And I bring it up because of, there was a recent episode of Untold Talks that we did where we brought a, a, a guest on down the web line who talked about it and disability. It, it's a pretty good episode. I'd say go check it out. But um, a little more to that legacy. That is Untold Talks of Spider-Man to be, give the full title to those who don't know about Matt's other podcast. I mean... How could they not? Hey, every every podcast is someone's new podcast. <laughs> every, if someone's, someone's first, first podcast. podcast. Or someone's first yeah. Never Stay Dead podcast. Yeah, and then he, I mean, he wasn't, Chris Claremont was the writer, but the first sort of breakout thing for Wolverine, the first Wolverine solo series was mm, a miniseries right. drawn by Frank Miller. And I remember that made a huge impression at the time. It was sort of, you know, it's like, let's put our biggest writer with our biggest artists together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that got to be more violent than most comics because yes. it was uh, um, sold differently. Right. So I would say when you look at the dark violence of comics, and they always say that started with Watchmen and um, The Dark Knight Returns, I would say it really started with this first Frank Miller run of Daredevil. Yeah, that's you know my opinion, and I think afterwards, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think afterwards is where you see much darker takes on characters like the Punisher and Wolverine and other, other sort of characters with a lot of murder and violence in their stories. Yeah, and like I said earlier, it's kind of funny because in that one Bullseye issue, we see him kill so many people. But if you read most Carnage issues of Spider-Man, Carnage doesn't kill that many people. I mean, you used to just not have people get killed, <laughs> especially, you know, individually. You might have whole planets destroyed, I suppose. Right. Again, it's that statistic versus violence idea. Like, there's a difference between watching and hearing about it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that feeling of you could just be walking down the street in your city and some nutcase could come along and shove a knife into you, which is... Mm-hmm kind of a dry a driving fear of frank miller i suppose well i would love if we came back and and read some later daredevil and talked about it i suppose the obvious thing would be the born again yeah i i think that's a good arc to talk about because it's it's some and <laughs> it's good stuff um i mean i'm a bit sad that i mean david mazzucchelli was a wonderful artist but i'm a bit sad that miller kind of moved out of the art side of things with his with his a lot of his superhero work well i feel like david mazzucchelli never really got a chance to um 
make his bones as much and was kind of under Miller's shadow, even though he's a very talented creator himself. Well, but by working with Miller, he worked with the most, he got the biggest spotlight. That's true, too. He's probably still making money off of being part of Batman Year One and Born Again. Those must sell year after year. All right. Well, maybe it's not a real tragedy. I just maybe, feel maybe like it the man is. Maybe it is. What What would you have, have thought he would do? Just something else, more on his own. You know, okay. kind of stake out more of a reputation for. He's done. He's done some other work, but it's more esoteric. What does he do now? He does very literary, completely non superhero kind of graphic novels, and he draws a lot for places like the New Yorker. So he has gone completely non-commercial non-superhero and is very respected but it doesn't look anything his art doesn't look anything like what it did when he worked with frank miller now i'm trying to see um yeah like estros polyp right um i'm trying to look to see because i know i've read some of his other stuff i'm just trying to uh yeah, I've seen stuff by him in The New Yorker, which my wife subscribes to, and in The New York Times at points when I was subscribing to that. Um, like in the magazine section things when they had a special comic book issue or comics issue. I'm trying to remember what I read, but yeah, I've definitely read some of his nonfiction stuff, and he's done some interesting things, definitely, but it is... He adapted a bunch of literary novels. He did something called Brooklyn Follies. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, Asteros Polyp, whatever that is. Right. That's a pretty well-known one. And it one. says he currently teaches cartooning at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. But so he basically left commercial comics um, and went right. to what you might call literary comics. Well, and while I can appreciate that, it's hard for me to not move past the fact that the New Yorker crowd is as pretentious as you can be to a fault. Right. And to call them literary and not commercial, because The New Yorker is very commercial. You make a lot of money by selling your comics to The New Yorker. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think there's a strength to that being there in another component, but also it's a tough pill to swallow. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of, when The New Yorker publishes comic book artists, I kind of feel like it's, it blands them out because I associate Robert Crumb being in the New Yorker and I'll read what he did in the New Yorker and it, it has no edge or bite to it at all. Um, it's just Robert Crumb being cute with his wife or something. And um, now right. I saw that Chris Ware is in the New Yorker. I don't, I haven't read that material, but I worry that, that he'll lose his edge, whatever edge. Well, I mean, for the New Yorker, you probably will, <laughs> I, but yeah. But you're probably paid, you know, $4,000 a page or something when you do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just pulled that number out of my butt. Fair enough. But I hear you. Yeah. So speaking of non-commercial, next time we're thinking of reading, what's it called? Not Final Crisis. Um, Identity Crisis. Identity Crisis. So, which I've never read. So um, that'll be interesting to read it for the first time heard a lot of negative things about it (laughs) but i guess it was also kind of a big deal and shocked everybody at the time so we'll see if i find it shocking well so it's a part of an era where dc was pulling in noted novel writers to try to add something and 
it, it was also technically retrofitted to be the first of three crises to build up to Final Crisis to uh, relaunch the DC Universe to everyone's favorite, uh, the New 52. But it was it was supposed to be a true mystery and it did keep people guessing during its day. I don't know. It's It was written by Brad Meltzer, who is kind of like a potboiler mystery government thriller kind of novelist, I believe. Yeah. I just thought it'd be good for us to read something that was, you know, superhero-y but self-contained. Okay. Well, it'd be fun. Give it a try. So it should be a quicker turnaround. (laughs) Hopefully we won't be dead. Um, or we will come back from the dead because we're back. I will drag that right out of the grave.